0: Things can work, but there's new things that can work even better. And so just because I'm doing something that's effective now doesn't mean I can't be doing something new that can be even more effective.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Connected Podcast, where we share inspiring stories of educational leaders. The guest on this episode is Craig Randall, whose book, Trust-Based Observations, is about exactly that, about finding ways to improve teaching and learning throughout schools by developing relationships, having trust-based conversations uh, about instructional practices and sharing those with the wider school community. We recorded this episode a few months ago, and I thought it was appropriate time to dust it off and publish it. Trust and relationship building has been something I've been thinking quite a lot about in conversations here on this podcast, in my own work environment, and yeah, in other professional contexts. This idea of building trust, or having trust in leadership, has been a recurring theme The question I have, and I think this episode touches on it quite a bit, where does that trust come from? And I think uh, Craig Randall's point of view is uh, similar to mine. The trust comes only from building real working relationships with people. And I think that's one of the challenges for leaders in education or teachers to find meaningful ways to collaborate doing real work not professional development that's too far removed from daily teaching practice, but real work that involves uh, helping each other perform the tasks that are uh, essential to uh, educational process, teaching and learning inside the classroom with students. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a big challenge. A lot of times if we're thinking about moving schools or introducing change projects inside of schools, Oftentimes, some of those ideas, maybe all of them, come from a few leaders, senior leaders or external forces. Often, a lot of responsibility, rightly so, is placed on these leaders to have answers. But the reality is, and we saw it during the pandemic, that the complexities and the questions that uh, the field of education, that running (laughs) or... educational organizations can entail is an enormous task. And, and I think it's unfair and unreasonable to expect that a senior leader or a group of senior leaders could possibly have all the answers about how, for example, to steer uh, a school community towards the future of education, balancing you know, current needs and what we know will emerge in the future. You know, I used to think leadership was about having great ideas, about being really knowledgeable. And of course, that's a part of it. But without being able to facilitate wider conversations and getting other people um, invested and interested in the change project, it's going nowhere. But the other side of that, and I think a side of that that doesn't often get talked about, is that there has to be a willingness to take some faith, to be willing to participate, be willing to find ways to trust and engage and build relationships from our side. Uh, but as I listen to Craig Randall, I, I wonder, what it what does it take for those first followers inside of a school who might be willing to uh, participate in this kind of trust-based observation that's, that he's talking about? Or... To, you know, engage in meaningful conversations with senior leaders, even when things aren't so clear or um, where the issues might be more complex uh, than a particular teacher or a group of teachers might understand. And I think what I'm trying to say is that it's really easy to blame. uh, And I think it happens too often in, in educational systems when things don't go the way we want. You know, we as teachers, we're inside of a classroom and we have this daily immediate responsibility to make sure that what's happening is the best for our students. And so when things happen that seem to interfere with that, or that there are pressures from the wider organization that don't always align with what we think are best practices for our school, for our teachers, for our students, then I think it's, uh, it, it can cause people to pull back and, um, Yeah. Even wonder about the motives of senior leaders or change processes but but I think that's a mistake um, where we too often get into these kinds of defensive routines where we think that something is going wrong because we don't necessarily have the full picture so you know this podcast that you'll hear from Craig is all about how leaders can establish. Um, trust can build relationships with staff, um, but I think it's also important for our staff to find ways to take leaps of faith to engage with conversations with senior leaders. And I don't mean challenge exactly, although it can be that, but to recognize that as individual teachers, we're also part of the organization, that we have an eye uh, and some responsibility, some professional responsibility. To make sure that we're engaged in the dialogue that we're participating in conversations and uh, making our voices known in a in a way that's collaborative and and responsible and and also i think we have some responsibility to reach out and try to formulate relationships uh with senior leadership as well so i think you know people get into education because they want to make a difference They are passionate about learning and teaching, and senior leaders are no different. So that's something that Craig alludes to in this conversation later. So once again, thanks for listening. Go out, find Craig's book, get it, read his website, and uh, participate inside of your own organizations. why are teacher observations kind of the way in to building trust? Why did you find that as like the, the, the piece?
0: Well, I mean, relationships, right. You have to have a relationship to build trust. So where as a principal, am I going to develop a relationship? I mean, Mm I, you know, we're walking around, we're doing everything we're doing or that model where people spend time in their office all day, which you can justify that, uh, because there's so many things to do, but not reasonably if you're, goal is to improve teaching and learning. If your goal is to improve teaching and learning, you've got to be out there. And so uh, the observation process, the second part of the observation process, the reflective conversation, that's when I get to, on a one-on-one basis, get to know you and get to know who you are as a person. And again, because we flipped flipped it on its head, instead of my telling you a bunch of things and giving you a bunch of ratings, I'm asking you, starting out by asking you these questions, what were you doing to help students learn? And if you had it to do over again, what if anything might you do differently? That just opens up the door for teachers to talk and for you to listen. And then again, because we're doing it in teachers rooms and as opposed to in my office, so it doesn't feel like you're getting called to the principal's office. They feel more comfortable and safe. And then because I'm not, especially at first, I'm not giving feedback. I'm just asking those questions and sharing strengths. Teachers start to feel more comfortable i want to say let the guard down but i'm not sure that's exactly the right phrase but they feel more comfortable and they start to just over time realize that it's it's just a collegial dialogue and then as that happens and it's differentiated to each teacher because each teacher is an individual human being just like we want with teaching then just trust just develops it's not like i'm trying to do it it's just the process allows it to happen
1: I'm I'm sort of curious uh, about how this developed, you know. Uh, and we started talking a little bit off mic, um, and just once once again. To you're, you're the author of uh, Trust Based Observations, and it's a book that I started reading and I find it really fascinating. The key cornerstone here it seems to be about trust, but I'm sort of curious how it kind of originated and what you saw along the way. Like, okay, this something here is working. Something here is really kind of transforming the way teachers are working in like in the schools.
0: Sure. I mean, I'll say it's probably started initially with just my feeling frustrated with the current models of observation, even in their best form. I remember a principal who was really good and did it the twice a year the way it was supposed to be, and, and it was it was fine. Uh, there was nothing wrong with it, but it just didn't feel like enough to me. And I think I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be observed more. I wanted to get feedback. I wanted to maybe show off things I thought I was doing well, and and then. After that, I had a two-year stretch at an international school. We were talking before about Warsaw, so it was there, mm-hmm. where I uh, I wasn't observed for two years, which uh, anybody who's been teaching a while, not anybody, but uh, many people will not be surprised to know that that's more common than you might think. And so we were feeling incredibly frustrated with that. And about the same time, I'd had somebody suggest I go into administration, which I hadn't really thought about before. And so I was just starting my program. I remember talking with a buddy about it. And a lot of people would just say, no, I know, but it's just the way it is. And then in the second part of my second half of my program or second year of my program, I ran across my mentor who ran the principal certification program at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. And I remember in his supervision class, he just started talking about you have to be in classes every day. You have to be observing teachers, uh, engaging in reflective conversations with them, supporting them, helping them get better. And I just remember this hallelujah moment of, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's not me that thinks like this, somebody else that's actually teaching it, how to do this is saying this. And so that really started it. And I remember asking him like, well, how long, how long are you supposed to be in class? And I think sometimes like some of the very best teachers do things without even know they're doing them. Yeah. And so he didn't, (laughs) it took me a while to get an answer out of him. And then finally he said an hour a day and that turned out to be really three 20 minute conversations or observations. And so in his class, I know this is kind of a long answer, but I think it's, it, it all makes sense is that we would have to bring in little mini lessons. It could be on anything from building a model airplane to whatever on to teach. And one of us would teach. One of us would be the observer and take our note. And then immediately after we would have a reflective conversation anchored by those two questions. And then after that, we would have a reflective conversation on the reflective conversation. And we did that so much that we I just felt extremely confident, like at my first assistant principal job, being able to do that. And then I'll say that Being in an international school for that first job where I wasn't tied to all the requirements about how you have to do it allowed me to break free of of that. So I think that played a big part. And I was lucky to have a mentor principal who was at a point in his career where mentoring somebody young and enthusiastic was what he was most excited about. So when I brought up the idea of doing these, he said, great. And he started doing it too. And so I just remember immediately teachers were just amazed and wowed and so excited to have us asking them questions instead of us telling them things. So immediately that resonated with teachers. And I had teachers like 20 years plus teaching and saying, wow, this is the first time someone's ever asked me about my teaching. And how sad is that? But they were so excited. And then the next part of the observation was sharing what we observe. So in essence, that's sharing strengths. And then, but no ratings because we didn't use the ratings. We just shared it. We saw on teachers, you could just see they'd get like embarrassed smiles and like, thank you, thank you. And just recognition for their efforts and what they were doing. And so that started it. And so I knew right away that clicked. But then the other thing was I didn't get feedback right away. And there were a couple of reasons for that. One, I felt like I'm seeing you so little. What if I offer a suggestion on something that you're really good at? but I just haven't seen it. Like, what's that going to do to the process? And to truth be told, I think that because I was the new guy and wanted to be liked, I was a little nervous about giving uh, reflective feedback right away. And so what ended up happening was about the third round through, I had a bunch of teachers start to say, okay, okay, but, but what can I get better at? And that was like the moment where mm-hmm. like, something, I didn't know was trust back then. I just knew that there was something yeah. that clicked that like, because I'd done it this alternative way and waited, somehow there was trust there. And then the result was people wouldn't just make incremental changes. They would be willing to adopt like whole new practices that would be transformative. And so that, then that even clicked more is like, wow, this is something here that's different.
1: That works well. I mean, what you're saying is so interesting. One of the things that you you talked about tapping into the teacher expertise, and that is something that I think in the traditional, you know, as I I'm a teacher and as I go about my my daily routine, it doesn't happen naturally where I'm able on a daily basis to learn from my colleagues. Yeah, and and I and I imagine even at the leadership level, that's the that's probably the source of information that has the most understanding about what's happening. And of course, in the classroom with students, um, in the world of education and not being able to tap into those without any kind of regular routine is, is a real detriment to school development.
0: Yeah. I I would say that one of the, maybe the biggest unexpected benefit of trust-based observations that I didn't realize at first is that, so we cycle through 12 observations a week, 12 reflective conversations a week. And so when I'm seeing teachers that much, what I didn't realize is all of a sudden I start to realize who's, who are my in-house experts at different areas of pedagogy. And so then once we know that, and this developed over time into what it was, then you, we started to tap into that for like having them lead a professional development session. First, we just had them at lunch and then it eventually it evolved into what it is now. And so what it became then is we had in-house experts and then we created professional development communities. And so the form only has nine areas of pedagogy on it, and research says anything more than 10, and we start to lose the forest through the trees. And so basically, we wanted to make it comprehensive. And so we tied uh, professional development communities that would meet once a month on each one of these nine areas, and then we would tie that to annual goals. So even though we don't have a rubric that we use for the observation, there is a rubric that teachers self-assess at the beginning of the year. And then they set an action research goal related to improving or adding new pedagogy in one of these areas. And then they'll do uh, action research. They'll do comparative uh, to their summative assessments the year before to see what doing that does to their overall progress. And so as we're doing all that, then teachers are becoming expert in each area along the year in a supported, facilitated atmosphere. And then what happens, though, with my teachers that are my in-house experts, and if I don't have necessarily an in-house expert in every, every area, it's all about support. So we'll send somebody or get training for somebody so we have one. But those teachers, that year they're leading, they can't participate as a student in another professional development community because they're leading because they all happen at the same time. And so then as somebody really buys into that new area of pedagogy, the next year they become the leader of that pedagogy and so the teacher that was the get to participate in another one the next year and so then it just becomes an empowerment cycle of all of my teachers and then just the culture of trust that develops through that is it's it's really really astounding and you're building everyone's uh toolbox at the same time
1: well I, there's so many pieces of that I, I don't even really know how to pick it out but one of the things that I mean, you're solving a lot of the problems that I've encountered in different posts. One of the things, you know, you you get teachers who are in maybe middle management positions or leadership positions, and a way of working becomes kind of entrenched. So I, I think it's really mm. fascinating how you're kind of cycling people up and through. Uh, that's really great, um, but. I, I, I can imagine myself buying in wholeheartedly to this, but what would be the incentive for a teacher who's like, okay, I'm I'm doing good practice, I'm doing my job. I don't know if I really have the ambition to become a leader or to really kind of re engage in, in in research. How do you how do you get teachers to buy in? <laughs>
0: That's a good question. <laughs> um what I would say is One, we we talk about lifelong learning, and we mean that, and we talk about developing that in our students, and so we have to model it if we're going to live it for others. So one, I'll say as trust develops, most people are willing to engage in that, and and Mm -hmm. if they're not, though, then we can have frank conversations because we've built trust with them. So I think that's one of the huge benefits of that. It makes having those so-called difficult conversations maybe a little less difficult. But I think the other important piece is that just because I'm good at something or effective at something, like with a neuro, uh, neuro research, brain research on education, I think one of the things that we're finding now is that things can work, but there's new things that can work even better. And so, just because I'm doing something that's effective now, doesn't mean I can't be doing something new that can be even more effective. And so, talking about that, I think really helps to to drive that conversation forward too. I think sometimes when we've been in the old model of observation, it is comfortable just to settle into what we're doing because that's safe, and because in so many places, sometimes that factors into retention that evaluative model. So when we add the new model, sure. teachers become over time more willing to take the risks.
1: It's also really interesting to hear how your organic kind of um, w- building this process organically over time, like you mentioned, as a, as a younger administrator, not wanting to ruffle feathers. So you had to have reflective conversations in a maybe different way. Uh, but what you did, I think, was build a, a strong degree of psychological safety for, <laughs> for teachers who may be feeling um people coming into their classrooms is, is something that's a, a big risk, like you've mentioned a few times in, in the book. Yeah. I um go ahead. No, I, I wonder I wonder if 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 you have a sort of um kind of a message or some advice to young administrators who who are trying to take on that role um to building that that trust that you're talking about.
0: Yeah. I mean going in regularly, seeing teachers enough. Asking questions. I mean, just the things that we talked about, I I think, is part of it. One of the, on the observation form, we have, the second thing we have listed is innovation and risk-taking. But to be honest, that's not there as something we look for. I mean, if we notice it, great, and we can write it down. But it's there, really, so as an observer, I can remind my teachers over and over and over again until they know it to be true. And obviously, we have to live it to make it true. But it's there so we can tell our teachers, look, my goal with trust-based observations is to create conditions of trust so that you know with absolute certainty that if I walk into your classroom and I observe you trying something new or even something old, and and it's an absolute complete disaster, it goes sideways, it's, it's, it's horrible, that the next day you with certainty know that you're going to receive a congratulatory fist bump for trying something new. And so, when we can create the conditions that teachers know, I try something new and it's horrible. My boss sees it and he goes, "Yes." Then true trust is there. And when that kind of trust is there, and we, as a new administrator or an old administrator, whoever, can genuinely create those conditions, then risk taking will. Nec- people will allow themselves to be vulnerable enough to perpetually take risks. And if people take risks, and Hattie talks about this, it's like a, a science experiment in a lab, and we perpetuate and taking risks over and over and over again, and we analyze, whether it's self-assessment or outside assessment, see what works and doesn't work and make adjustments, see how it works with the kids and doesn't, and make adjustments, then you're going to see innovation. You're going to see creativity. And I say growth will necessarily follow. So it's really bottom line, it's about that.
1: Well, it's it's interesting because... I I think of different school cultures that I've been a part of, or, you know, I know colleagues who have been part of, and I think the typical way of thinking about teaching is what, what you're doing in your classroom is your, you know, intellectual property or your intellectual domain, which is, of course, unfortunate. But I think what you're sort of talking about, which is interesting to me, is that the entire school is almost like a laboratory of best practice to see how, what's working in the classroom, what's not. And your, your responsibility isn't just for the particular class that you're teaching, it seems, but it's, it's like helping the entire community of learners develop themselves, which I think is an interesting shift.
0: You know, it, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Kagan Cooperative Learning. And really, in essence, that's what we're doing. We're just doing a massive cooperative learning, uh, maybe not as formalized structure-wise as with with Kagan, but but we all benefit when that happens. And we all have different strengths and we all have different areas where we can grow. And when we can share with each other and learn with each other over time, and we've created a comprehensive system, it's not just the observations and reflective conversations, Mm -hmm. but it's also tied in directly to goal setting and it's tied in directly to professional development. And and it's a model of support. I mean, you know, it sounds a little kumbaya, but it but it really, it's teachers. They love it. They love being in an environment like that. It's it's safe to take risks. It's still scary to take risks, and it's still teaching so hard. And we're dealing with developing human beings and the unpredictability of whatever they bring from outside into the class and the dynamics of that different group of students and. We all know like at the secondary level, I can teach a class like a prep to one class and just nail it and just think, I am a master teacher. That's me. Yep. Hello. Thank you. And we can the next hour teach that same class exactly the same way to a different group of students with all those different dynamics involved and have it be a disaster and then think, oh my God, I I need to find a new profession. Uh, Parker Palmer and the Courage to Teach, which I recommend that book to everybody. That would be mandatory reading for every first year teacher. That's really what he talks about. And so we have to have empathy as administrators, as school leaders for just how crazy, difficult and challenging teaching is with all that. And if we bring that on our heart and that understanding to our practice, then we will create those conditions for teachers of trust that allow them to deal with the vulnerability of it and be willing to take risks.
1: I'm going to ask you. I think uh, maybe a difficult question. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because it seems Uh-oh. to me, yeah, it seems to me that your 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 leadership competence is at a very very high level, and I, I, I wonder how do other administrators who maybe I mean that's the impression I get. So how do other administrators who don't have the same level of experience or who don't have the energy for development how do they mo- move in this direction? Because you're talking about balancing a lot of different things at the same time. um
0: well i think you have to be willing to uh, look we we have to look at the current models first and and we have to realize if i perpetuate in doing a model that research is saying doesn't work that's the old pushing against that brick wall and expecting something different to happen so we have to assess analyze and acknowledge the facts first that what we're doing right now as a whole in our society it, with of education it, it isn't, with observation and evaluation is not working. So that's the first thing. And so when that's not there, and I realize, like in the United States, there is legislation, I believe, in all 50 states, but certainly most of the states that mandates kind of what you have to do. And so that makes it even more challenging because many of them say you have to do models that are Marzano, Danielson, et cetera. And th- this is an interesting thing that I've been coming across as I'm just starting to work with public schools during this crazy pandemic is that almost every legislation also has language in there that allows for innovation pilot work that allows you to skirt those legislative requirements. And so we've got to be creative. We've got to be willing to take risks ourselves, but then, yeah, we have to educate ourselves. And so, I mean, listen to a trust based observations podcast, uh, Honestly, yeah. Read the book, get the book, practice it, uh, reach out to me. Uh, we do training and Mm -hmm. I, I think there's no substitute. Like, even though, I mean, that book is my baby and I poured my heart and soul into it. I think in a lot of ways, there's no substitute for getting to come and practice for a week. Of, yeah. of doing those observations and reflective conversations. And, and as you do that for a week, I know I trained a school in, in Mississippi in December and, and she probably wasn't my ideal candidate because she was a type self-described type a personality and a, a former athlete who was like, well, coach, what's wrong? Okay, well, then now I'll fix it. And wanted to work that same way and realized that wasn't working along with the rating scale and having a teacher who she gave a three, a really strong teacher, cry because she thought she deserved a four when none of that really has to do with growth and improvement. And yet within a day, like the light bulb came on that this is how it works. And then by Wednesday, and we started on a Monday, she's getting teachers emailing her saying, Can you observe me? Can you observe me? I mean, who does that? Right? Because you know how teachers talk. So already two days in, teachers are going, Oh, I want to try this. I want to try this. And now, when I heard from her about a month ago, she was about two months in and she said, Every single teacher is happier. And she had actually taken some Kagan cooperative learning structures training in the interim and started to train her teachers. And she wrote, Already their toolboxes are growing. And so Mm -hmm. when we hear little stories like that and we know and we read in, And if we have emotional intelligence and a heart to realize, how am I going to get the best out of my teachers? And if we also realize that my number one goal as an administrator is to improve teaching and learning, then that ought to get you going. And this, so it's starting the process of educating yourself and then taking action.
1: That's really powerful stuff. I'm, I'm curious about that click. You said, okay, a couple of days into the workshop, you're getting teachers emailing the, the, this, this leader at the school asking yeah. to be part of it. What do you think they see as the value within those first few days? What do teachers notice right away?
0: I didn't ask her that question directly. <laughs> what I would say is I think they're so excited that it's not being told, that it's being asked. It's wanting their, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like as a teacher, I think it's in, immediately my value is increased because you're asking me what I think and you're trusting me and respecting me as a professional enough to know it. And we're framing it in terms of learning. And so instantly I think that resonates, resonates so deeply with people. And again, it's the same thing. We all want to know what we're doing well. And so if I'm sharing what I observed and I'm not attaching levels to it, that's sharing a strength. I don't care if it's a basic strength it's still a strength. And so that resonates, it's praise really, I guess, but it's, it's observed praise. And so I think those two things just resonate so deeply. And then in addition to that, you take out, it's the absence of these absurd numbers, basic, approaching, not sufficient, uh, proficient, innovating. I mean, none of that. It's all, I mean, No one could argue if you look at each one of those indicators on Marzano or Danielson that, yeah, it's not an element of good teaching and it's not great to have it that way. But no one could master all of those anyway. And frankly, if you go back and look at it, uh, Danielson did not write that originally as an evaluation model. She wrote it originally for teachers to self-assess. And so... I'm going off on tangent a little bit, but all that stuff goes together to make it so it matters to teachers. It's a huge difference.
1: And I think what, was, what jumped out to me in this conversation and, and in reading the book, you're, you're talking as, a, as an administrator, as a leader, you're talking about helping grow and develop people instead of something on a form, which I think is, is fundamental to, to the message that I'm hearing from you.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's differentiated like each individual person I'm working with you and I'm working with you, and I'm working with you and i and I care about you and I like why did every single one of us get into teaching as far as I know, it's because we want to make a difference in the lives of young people, so anybody that got into teaching? man, they've got great aims. Maybe it got lost along the way and beaten down, sometimes by the evaluation observation process. But if that's why I got into it, and that's definitely why I got into it, and I bet that's why you got into it, then let's Mm -hmm. tap into that and see what I can do. Like, it really comes down to how do you get the best out of people?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so obvious to us when we're in the classroom. And you mentioned also in the book about people who are, you know, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, You had a phrase, something like, you know, High performing teachers are teachers who tend to move on to you know, leadership or administrative roles and they go into different classrooms and expect people to teach exactly like them, which is, yeah. which is a false way of thinking about things. But you know, it's, it's so obvious as a teacher, we would never treat each student the same. We would never you know, assess a student without thinking about their, their background or you know, the, the progress that they've made or be able to have like, these kinds of reflective conversations. It's so interesting we lose sight of that when we're talking to adults.
0: It, it's it's amazing the hypocrisy between the way that we are expected to that we expect teachers to give descriptive progress feedback to students and the way that we as observers give it to teachers. It's 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 astounding. It's it's embarrassing, frankly. Mm. And so, it's uh, yeah.
1: Craig, I. I really, really appreciate this conversation. Can you maybe let us know how to get in touch with you for people who are interested and let us know about the book and anything else?
0: Sure. Uh, you can get a hold of me like social media, Twitter, it's at trustbasecraig, uh, LinkedIn at trustbase Craig too. Um, I have a website trustbase. so that's all there's a theme here. Uh, you can email me directly Craig at trustbase. Uh, The book is available on Amazon or really any other source where you want to get a book from. And so those are the best ways to get hold of me.
1: Well, once again, I really, really appreciate this conversation. Thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate it.